0: We're going to be at the very end of Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 9, verse 32 and following. Let me set this up. This little story here, it's really two stories back to back, are sandwiched in between what are probably the two most important chapters in the book of Acts, potentially two of the more important chapters in the whole of the New Testament. So, Acts chapter 9, we know as the conversion of Saul. Remember that, we talked about this last week. Saul becomes the apostle Paul, the missionary, the apostle to the Gentiles. So you and I, looking around the room, mostly Gentiles in here today, like we owe our faith in large part to the ministry of this guy, Saul, who took the good news of Jesus to the nations. And you and I are among that group. So it's a big deal when he becomes a believer in Jesus Christ. He eventually writes a bunch of the New Testament, big deal. Acts chapter 10 is the conversion of Cornelius. Maybe you've heard that name before. Cornelius is the first Gentile convert. Now we could argue maybe about the Ethiopian eunuch and a few others who were already God-fearers. But Acts 10 is a really significant moment because it represents the fulfillment of God's promise going all the way back to Genesis 12 when he picks this guy named Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm gonna choose you and I'm going to work through you and your descendants to eventually bless everybody. So Acts chapter 10 is the moment that's happening. The gospel goes to the Gentiles and suddenly you and I are among the everybody that God's going to bless. It's a big deal. Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 10. Sandwiched between them is the story of two miracles. And I really want to think with you today about this question of what, what is God doing today through Jesus Christ? What would that look like if I saw it? And how would that change what I do and what I pray for? All right, come with me here to Acts chapter 9, verse 32. Little story sandwiched between these two huge chapters. As Peter traveled around the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up. Roll up your mat. And immediately Aeneas got up, and all those who lived in Lydda and shared, they saw him and they turned to the Lord. And in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. She was always doing good, and she was helping the poor. And about that time, she became sick, and she died, and her body was washed, and it was placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they Sent men, two men to him, and they urged him, please come at once. So Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room, and all the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and the other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room, and he got down on his knees and he prayed. And turning towards the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes. And seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and he helped her to her feet. And then he called all the believers, especially the widows, and he presented her to them alive. And this became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. All right, you hear these two stories, and there's an obvious question you're asking yourself, okay? There should be one One obvious question, let's throw that obvious question up on the screen. The obvious question you should be asking yourself is, why isn't our preacher bringing back more people from the dead? Haven't you wondered that before? Which may lead to a second question. Is our preacher broken? Or third, do we need a new one? Are you wondering these things as you read this story? Like why is the preacher Peter able to heal somebody who's been lame, raise somebody from the dead? And your preacher Eric is not able to do that. That's a good question. Maybe the question, I hope you're not asking those questions, actually. What what I do think you're probably asking is where have all the miracles gone? Where have they gone? Why isn't Eric or, or anybody I know doing things like that anymore? And when I see things like that, perhaps on TV and stuff, I'm very suspicious of those things. So why, why is that? Where have all the miracles gone? Okay, now there is really good debate among good Christians about whether good Christians can still perform miracles, okay? Just for the record, if you're a Googler, if you're somebody who wants to follow up on something in a sermon, you're a note taker, you might write this down. Some people think that miracles like this have ceased... And we call those people secessionists, okay? It has ceased. Those who think those miracles continue are called continuationists. It's not a very original name, but that's what we call them, okay? All right, we debate whether or not Christians ever perform miracles anymore. Now, that's a worthy debate, but what nobody debates, and let me be really clear about this, what nobody debates is that the risen Jesus Christ is still working in the world. And if the risen Jesus Christ is still working in the world, then miracles are still happening. Okay, let me explain that. Part of our challenge with the word miracle is that we really don't have good words to describe what a miracle is. Because all the words that we have come from observation of the world around us and our attempt to describe the world as we know it. That's what language is, an attempt to describe the world as we know it. Or think about science. I'm a big fan of science. I believe in it. What science is by definition is observation of the natural world, how things occur naturally, okay? So like when you go to the doctor, the doctor would say, well, normally this is what's gonna happen, okay? So it's an observation of the natural world. But a miracle, by definition, is something unnatural or supernatural. A miracle, by definition, is when some power beyond the natural world breaks into it. And so because of that, we don't have a good way to talk about those things. We can identify when a miracle has happened if it breaks the natural order So, for example, a paralyzed man walking again, or a dead woman being raised from the dead. Those two things are obviously miraculous to us. What we have a harder time identifying is something that is the work of Christ, but doesn't necessarily defy what we would call the natural order. Let me give you an example. Twice a year, we take up a special contribution, and I'll never forget the first contribution that we took up in 2020 in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, I had, uh, one, never led a church before. Two, never led a church before in a pandemic. Three, never tried to raise a half a million dollars in a pandemic. Okay. Never done all those things. And I remember just deep anxiety filling my heart as it it relates to this. And so we prayed fervently that God would provide what we needed. And we didn't only meet our goal through your generosity. We exceeded it by a couple hundred thousand dollars. We're able to do really incredible things all over the world because of that generosity. Now, is that beyond the laws of nature that a group of people would give so abundantly? No, it's possible. Is it also possible, though, that Jesus Christ influenced our hearts to give so generously? And to that we'd say, yeah, yeah, that's possible too. And if that took place, if a supernatural power influenced the natural world, what would we call that? A miracle. That's what we would call it. Okay, are you hanging with me? We're getting a little technical here. All right. So... The sharp reader of this passage, which you're all sharp readers, right? The sharp reader of this passage notices it is not Peter performing this miracle. Who's doing it? Did you see it? What does he say? Jesus Christ heals you. Do you notice that? Let's throw that up there on the screen. He doesn't say, I, Simon Peter, heal you. What does he say? Jesus Christ heals you. And sure enough, the guy gets up like he tells him takes up his mat, and walks. And then the second scene with with Tabitha, where she's deceased, what does he do before he tells her to get up? Did Did you notice that? Let's look at that. He got down on his knees and prayed. So what's he doing? He's appealing to a power that he does not have to do something he's not able to do. What is it? raised Tabitha from the dead. He appeals to this power that he doesn't have to do something that he can't do, and it's only through the granting of that prayer that she's raised from the dead. You see that here? Tabitha, get up. So a sharp readers noticing it's not Peter doing this. Who is it? It's Christ Jesus doing it through Peter. All right, hang with me, sharp readers. You will also notice that he tells this paralyzed man to get up and take up his mat. Does that remind you of anybody else doing anything else? Do you remember Jesus Christ healing a paralyzed man? Do you remember what he tells him? Get up, take up your mat, and what? Walk. Jesus also raises a girl from the dead another time. In this case, it's a young girl. This this time, we're dealing with a woman, with Tabitha. But do you remember Jairus' daughter dies? Jesus goes to her, and he says to her, "Do you remember what he says, Talitha cum, which means little girl, get up, All right? Tabitha, get up. Talitha, get up. Do you hear it? Do you think that's coincidental? Okay, in Bible school they say now." Nah. No, it's not, that's not a coincidence. Here's the point I'm trying to make through this. What we see here happening is that Jesus Christ, I want to say this really clearly, we believe Jesus Christ is still working in the world, period. We believe Jesus Christ is still working in the world because he is risen, period. All right. Now let me go back to the first sentence. Jesus Christ is still working in the world, comma, through the church, that his power is manifest, present, at work through his church, enabling them to do things that by their power they are not able to do because it's him doing it. And the confirmation is the same thing that he was doing in the Gospels, he is still doing now through them. Are you with me? You tracking with me? All right. So this is why we pray, and we're going to circle back to this at the end. I had a conversation with somebody out in the hallway, and he said, yeah, that's what gets me. When I talk to people who don't believe that God is still doing things in the world through his son, Jesus Christ, I always wonder, well, why do you pray then? Because you wouldn't pray if you didn't know in your heart that the risen Jesus can answer those prayers and actually do something here, not just in the future, here and now. So we believe Jesus is still working. We believe he's still doing miracles and he's doing them through the church. But let me ask you this. What would be the primary indicator or sign that we see today of the work of the risen Jesus Christ among us. What would it be? If we saw this, we would know that Jesus is at work and we couldn't credit it to anything else. What would that be? Okay, I told you this passage is a transition to Acts chapter 10, between 9 and 10. So come with me here into Acts chapter 10. Let me show you something. Acts chapter 10 is often called the conversion of Cornelius. That's the Roman who Peter goes and converts by the power of the Lord. I think before Cornelius is converted, Peter himself is converted. What I mean by that, and you hear it in the language of conversion, is that he is convicted, same root word, of something he did not know to be true, and he changes his mind. So let me show you this. Look at this. A voice told him to Peter, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. Let me set this up. Peter's a good Jew. He has a vision of unclean animals that Jews don't eat, and he sees the risen Jesus come and tell him to get up and kill and eat those animals. And he tells Jesus, No way. Have you ever done that? Have you ever told Jesus, No? I mean, you've got to be pretty sure about yourself to tell the risen Lord, Surely not. You got this one wrong, Jesus. Okay, so that's his first response. We know what he thinks. But then a few verses later, look at this, verse 19. He's still thinking about it. Look at this. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Don't hesitate to go with them, for I've sent them. So these Gentiles come to him, and he actually gets up and goes with them, which he would not have done before, but he's thinking about what he's just realized. Okay, but he doesn't fully realize it. Look at this. He comes to verse 34. He goes and he meets with this Gentile. He sees the Lord confirming this by the power of his spirit. And look what he says. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation those who believe in him. So let me ask you this question. What's more miraculous? You're going to see this on the screen. What's more miraculous? That a paralyzed man walked again that a dead woman lived again or that a man changed his mind. Think about that. Think about that, which is more miraculous. And that's not a dig at men. I know some stubborn women. Okay. So some of you in the room, okay, that's not a dig at men, but how significant, that at the level of what he believes to be most true, he realizes he's wrong and he changes his mind. You and I live in a world that tells us people do not do that, right? People don't do that. It's a world that makes us deeply cynical because what happens is people get further and further entrenched in what they already believe and know to be true, rather than ever having their minds changed, right? Jonathan Haidt wrote this book called The Righteous Mind. Has anybody read, read that book? He's a uh, ph- uh, kind of a philosopher, uh, uh, thinks about how humans will operate. And he says, he gives this great image. I've never forgotten the image. He says that we make our decisions, we think like this. He says, imagine a big elephant. On the top of that elephant is this little guy, and he's riding on the elephant. He's got a little saddle up there, and he's got reins, and he's trying to control an elephant and tell it where to go. He says that's basically how the human mind operates, that the elephant as us is our intuition, our instinct, our impulses, and that little rider is our reason, our reasoning brain. And he says you think that you're able to control that elephant, but that elephant controls you. And that elephant goes where it wants. It knows what's right all the time and it just goes after. I mean, think about it. We live in a world where you are always right. I'm always right, always. I mean, how many of you think something that you know to be wrong? (laughs) Any hands? No, because you're always right, right? Isn't that true? And me too, we are always right. So let me throw this back up there. We showed this last week. This is what we call the person pyramid, Okay, so the person pyramid is basically it's a really simple concept. At the top is our actions, what we do every day. What we do every day comes from, whether we know it or not, a sense of purpose. What's my purpose? If it's a student, is it if it's to be a student, my purpose is to go to school, to study for this test. Okay, if it's to be a dad, my purpose is to help my kids or raise them. Okay. But beneath that level of purpose is what we would call meaning or bedrock truth. So the meaning of life from which I get my Purpose in life. So the deepest truths in all of us, what happens to us is we get stuck in forms of meaning that are incomplete or untrue. Untrue. And when I believe something at the meaning level which is untrue, that's warping my sense of purpose and causing me to do things that I should not do, you know what we call that? We call that sin. And what Paul says is, When I believe something to be untrue that is not true, it is the same as being dead. That's the language that he uses. Dead in your transgressions and sins. And so who has the power to change in us what we believe to be true, to radically transform our purpose so that we do different things every day? Who has the power? Let me put it simply. To change a person, it is the one who has power to bring people from dead to life. And the only person in whom we have seen that power is Jesus Christ. But because, because we've seen that power in him, we believe it is possible for people to change. We believe it's possible. And if it were to take place, if somebody I know and I love were to change, it would be a miraculous work of Jesus. That's what it would be. So let me, let me kind of draw this out just a little bit more. We're going to wrap up. Did you notice I tried to emphasize the word? Did you see get up in each one of those stories? Get up. So Peter tells Aeneas, get up. Take up your mat and walk. Jesus Christ heals you. He tells Tabitha, get up. Tells her to raise up from the dead. Get up. What you may have also noticed is in that conversion of Peter, before he goes to meet with Cornelius, he's having this dream on the top of the rooftop, and what does the risen Lord tell him to do? Get up, kill, and eat. And then he's still thinking about it, and the Spirit comes back to him, and he's like, no, I meant it. Get up. And so he actually does get up and go with the guys to go and Meet with Cornelius. What you may not know is that same word shows up earlier in Acts chapter 9 when Saul is on the Damascus road on his way to persecute and even kill Christians, put them in prison. When he's on his way on the road to Damascus, the risen Lord appears to him, knocks him from his horse, says, why are you persecuting me? And then do you remember what he says to him? Get up. I'm going to go and I'm going to show you what you must do. Where you come to Acts chapter 11, and Peter's remembering this moment on the rooftop when Jesus comes and he tells him what to do. And you know what he tells the other apostles that Jesus told him? He looks at him and he says, you know what he told me? He told me to get up. In Acts chapter 12, Peter is imprisoned. He doesn't think there's any hope of getting out of prison, but the disciples, they're earnest in prayer. They're praying just fervently for Peter. And so this angel of the Lord sent by Jesus comes to Peter, and you know what he says to him? You have any idea? If you don't know by this point what he says to him, you are not listening. He says, get up, get up. Foster got it right down here on the front row. That's my man right there. He says, get up. Okay, so we're gonna call this the get up effect of Jesus Christ. And here's what I wanna say. There is one and only one who has the power to command people to get up. That is to get unstuck from whatever it is there is only one who has that power, and it is the risen Lord who still works today. That's it. And he has the power in two words, one in Greek, in two words, to get us unstuck and changed. He's got that power, and only him. The philosopher Plato tells this story, and it's called the allegory of the cave. Have you ever heard of this? You have, probably. And so I have this group of guys who are bound up in chains deep in a dark cave, but there is this light behind them, and that light casts a shadow, it's their own shadow on the wall. And they've been in this cave so long, all they've ever seen are these shadows, and they've come to believe that these shadows are all that it is. The, the shadows are reality, the shadows are, are truth. But one guy weasels his way out of the chains and he crawls out of the cave and he sees the sun for the first time. And he realizes it's the sun coming through the cave that's causing these shadows. So he comes come out here and he sees the real world as it actually is, the real truth. And he realizes what he had thought all along wasn't right. And he goes back down into the cave to tell his buddies, he's like, come and see what I found. And you know what he says to him? Get up. And you know what? They don't do it. They don't do it. They're like, no, we're gonna stay here. This is it, this is it. And man, I'll tell you, there may not be a story that better captures the moment we are living in than that one. And I know that makes us deeply cynical. The people won't ever change. They never get up. They won't come and see the light as it really is and find the truth that changes your whole life. People just won't do that. But I'm telling you, don't buy into that cynicism because we have what Plato doesn't and it's Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. And through the miraculous power of Jesus working through you and me, people can get up and be changed. And they can find in him real meaning I hope you don't forget that in Acts chapter 12 I mentioned this a second ago when Peter is arrested and the church faces its first real real significant crisis of leadership you know what they do they pray we're told they earnestly prayed and this is why Acts chapter 9 get up Acts chapter 9 get up Acts chapter nine, get up. Acts chapter 10, get up, get up. 11, get up. Okay, these are people who believe. There's one who has the power to change things. Let's talk to him. And in your life, you may need that help. You may know somebody's stuck in something. You may be at your wit's end. What I would tell you is, talk to the one who can get them to get up because he's still working in our world let me pray over you god i'm thankful for your people this morning i'm thankful that they have come god to be blessed and nourished this morning they've come to lift you on high because they believe that you are the meaning behind all things Their lives are based on that. And yet each of them have in their heart somebody who's burdened, who's struggling, who needs to be changed. God, I pray that you would hear their pleas on behalf of that person. And that you would cause them to get up for your glory. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, our Savior and risen Lord. Amen.